Well, we don't normally give out awards for scripture reading here at Hope Church, but I think Brooke Bell deserves one. Uh, those are a lot of... Uh, <laughs> Those are a lot of difficult uh, names there, and uh, I knew Brooke was up for the, up for the challenge, and uh, it, it's interesting, all these, all these names, right? We don't even know, I, like, I, I was telling Brooke before, and she said, I, I don't really know how to pronounce it. I'm like, I don't know how to pronounce them either. Just say it with authority. And, but it's interesting, because like, these kings would have been a huge deal at the time. Everyone would have known who they are. Everyone would have known Kedor Leomor, and everyone would have known Amraphel, and everyone would have known Shinab. Abram was the one who was a nobody, and yet thousands of years later, we're not talking about the mighty kings. No one's talking about Kedor Leomor. No one's coming up for a child dedication saying, here's baby Amraphel. No. But we all know the name Abram. It's interesting. That in the course of history and in the authority of scripture, it's the nobodies who end up being the somebodies. A few hundred years from now and on into eternity, no one's going to remember Biden or Trudeau or Xi Jinping or, or, or any other. No, 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 we're not going to know how to pronounce those names. But people are always going to remember Carol Unruh and Beverly Salmon. They're the ones who are looking after your children and hope kids right now because their names are written in the book of life and because they did something with their life, not to build some great country or some great army that they devoted their lives to pouring into the next generation. People are going to remember the nobodies. <laughs> and God had given this promise to Abram in Genesis chapter 12 that he was going to bless him and that through him all the nations of the world were going to be blessed. This nobody was going to be a blessing to the whole world. And quite early on, Abram starts mixing it up with world leaders. I mean, he, he flees a famine. He ends up in Egypt. He accidentally gives his wife in, in, in marriage, essentially, to the Pharaoh, really the most powerful man in the known world at the time. And so Abram's having to interact with Pharaoh in his court after that disaster. And now we have all of these Mesopotamian kings and the kings in the land of Canaan and Abram's being thrust right into the middle of it. Again, these are all of the nations that God is going to bless through Abram and we see Abram interacting with them. We see here that uh, Abram is very courageous. The title for today's message is this, it's Courage Without compromise. Abram is going to act very, very courageously in the story. He has grown significantly from Genesis chapter 12, where he was so afraid he told his wife to pretend that, 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 that she was his sister and not his wife. Now Abram is risking his life to save his nephew, Lot. Abram is being courageous because the God of promise is also the God of of victory. The God of promise is also the God of victory. So before we get to the, the beatdown of epic proportions carried out by, by an old man and 318 men, I, I want to sort of just 
put some milestones in, in, in the story here for us. So we're, we're initially going to talk about the background of the story. And then we'll talk about the battle and the courage that Abram showed in actually going to war against these four kings from Mesopotamia. And then lastly, the blessing that comes at the end of chapter 14. So the background, the battle, and the blessing. We start with the background. Uh, look at chapter 14 of verse 1. These are uh, um, the kings from Mesopotamia. It says, In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, uh, Shinar is modern day Iraq, then Arioch, king of Elisar, Kedolaomer, king of Elam, that's modern day Iran, and Tidal, king of Goyim. These kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemaber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor. So let me map this out for you. You've got four kings living in Mesopotamia, modern day Iraq and Iran. And they went to war with the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah and Adma and Zeboim and Bela. Now look at verse Three, it says, all these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is the Salt Sea. The Salt Sea is the Dead Sea. That's where Sodom and Gomorrah is. So there's the land of Canaan, the Sea of Galilee to the north, the Jordan River flowing into the Dead Sea. That's the, that's the Salt Sea. So the battle happened in the land of Canaan. Now, why were these kings from Mesopotamia all the way down in Canaan? Look at verse four. 12 years they had served Kedolaomer. But in the 13th year, they rebelled. Kedolaomer, who was the king of Elam, he was sort of the leader of these kings of Mesopotamia. And he was really the ruler of the, the known world, uh, that, that part of the world. And if you wanted to remain safe, uh, you needed to pay a tribute. You needed to pay tax. And uh, uh, it wasn't like super well organized. It was kind of more like the mafia, you know? The, the kings of Mesopotamia came down to Canaan and said, oh, this is a really nice piece of land you got here. I'd really hate for something awful to happen, you know? You know? And they had to pay up. And for 12 years they paid. But then in the 13th year, they didn't pay. A whole year went by. They didn't pay their taxes. They didn't pay their tribute. Then in verse 5, it says, in the 14th year, so they gave it a year. Maybe the money got lost in the mail. Maybe they just forgot. But a whole year goes by, and these kings are like, we're coming to get what's ours and more. You haven't paid up, and so we are going to come and shake you down. Verse 5, in the 14th year, Kedileomar and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim and Asheroth Karnim, the Zuzim and Ham, the Enim and Shaveh Kiriathim, and the Horites and their hill country of Seir as far as El Paran in the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En, Brooke, help me here, En Mish, Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazon. Tamar. So these four kings come to the land of Canaan. They're showing them here on this next map with four stars. And they're going to attack the four kings in the land of Sodom and Gomorrah. But verses 5 to 7 
describes the war before the big war. That on their way to get to the Valley of Sedim, uh, we'll go to the next map here, they defeat the Rephaim and the Zuzim and the Enim and the Horites. And then it says they turned back in verse 7 and started to head north towards the Amalekites and the Amorites. And so now the battle is set. They're right at the edge of the Valley of Sedim. And so we'll zoom in here. So now Sodom, Gomorrah, Bela, Adma, and Zeboim, they're all gathering in the Valley of Sedim to fight against these four Mesopotamian kings. Now, these four Mesopotamian kings who have already destroyed six major Canaanite cities on the way, just on the way to the war, they've already won six battles. And these aren't battles just against no one. The, the first people that are mentioned there in, uh, in verse five, the Rephaim, the original audience would have been like, the Rephaim? Because the Rephaim were giants. Uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 2, there, it says the land of Rephaim, a people of great and many, as tall as the Anakim. The, the Anakim, if you study your Old Testament, they're the tall ones. They're the big giants. So the Rephaim were as tall and as numerous as the Anakim. So the, these four kings, the first battle was against a bunch of giants and they won. And they just kept cutting through the land like a buzzsaw until they got to the valley of Sedim. So this is, the, this is the background of the story. Then we pick it up where um, Brooke began in verse 8. The, then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, and the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor, went out and they joined battle in the valley of Sedim with Kedolaomer, the king of Elam, Tidal king of Goyim, Amraphel king of Shinar, and Ariok king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now, this is, this is really interesting. Here's the description of the battle. Now, the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits. And as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, there was no battle. <laughs> they just, they, they showed up and they saw these four kings and, and they immediately ran away. Some of them, it says, fell into the bitumen pits and the rest of them fled to the hill country. There really was no battle. That The kings of Sodom and Gomorrah are cowards. We know from chapter 13 that this is a wicked land and they're ruled by wicked leaders who don't have courage, who are filled with cowardice. And rather than defending their land, rather than defending their people, they run away. Then we're told in verse 11, so the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. This is how Abram factors into the story though. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. Lot was living in Sodom. When we le left off with Lot in chapter uh, 13, a Lot wasn't living in Sodom. Remember Abram and, and Lot and they had all of this livestock and there was quarreling among the different herdsmen and Abram was very generous and he said, hey, you can, you can get first dibs on any part of the land that you want. And so Lot looks at Bethel, which means house of God, and then looks in the direction of Ai, which means a heap of ruins. And he decides to head in the direction, he turns away from the house of God and turns towards the heap of ruins. And he heads in the direction of Sodom. And the book of Genesis actually records sort of a, 
a progression on Lot's part away from God and towards Sodom. So Lot looks to the east and he chooses Sodom in chapter 13, verse 1. Then he camped near Sodom in chapter 13, verse 12. But now that we get to chapter 14, verse 12, he's living right in the city. And this is a real warning for us. Because we can start to get close to sin or comfortable to sin or live in the general proximity of sin and think everything's just still fine. We're just scrolling on our phone or surfing on the internet and we come across something and, and we realize, oh, I'm not going to look at that again. And then we go back to the, 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 start looking at the same feeds or the same, oh, there it is again. And, and oh, and there it is again. And then I'm not just scrolling, I'm now clicking and I'm now searching. And now, now when I go to my phone or I go on the internet, the first thing in my mind is to go right back to that. But it just started with just, just having it in the general proximity. Yeah, she's a non-Christian, but we're just, we're just really good friends, okay? We're just really good friends. Uh, uh, but then she was going to a wedding, and it's an ad one, so she invited me to, so I'm going, I'm going as her date, but we're not dating. We had a great time at the wedding, so now we're dating, and now we're engaged, and now I'm trying to explain to my parents or my pastor or my Christian friends why it's now okay for me to pursue a relationship with an unbeliever. Do you understand how it happens? It happens just so somewhat innocently. Lot started, he's just heading in the general direction. He's camping near. Now he is living in and he's going to suffer the consequence of living in Sodom and Gomorrah. So that's the, that's the background of the story. We live in a world that is ruthless. And Lot was clueless. Don't be clueless. Be on guard. Be on the lookout. Remember, Lot looked with his eyes. He was not walking by faith. He was walking by sight. So that's the background of the story. Sin is progressive. It starts small. He was living outside the city. And before he knew it, he was living right in it. And before he knew it, he was being carried away captive. The thing that we think we're freely engaging in can so often end up enslaving us if we aren't wise. So that's the background. Now let's go to the battle. The battle. Because we live in a world that is ruthless, we, we need to understand that courage is required. If you are going to live the Christian life, with any semblance of integrity, if you are going to follow Jesus holistically in every area of your life, not just on Sunday, but 24-7 living for Jesus, it is going to require courage. So here's how Abram gets involved. Verse 13, the providence of God. Verse 13 says, Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eschol and Aner. These were the allies of Abram. So Abram finds out that this has taken place. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, just stop the sentence right there, put yourself in Abram's shoes. Understanding the background of how strong and powerful these kings are, of how foolish Lot was, 
If you were in Abraham's shoes, and when you find out that Lot, your kinsman, has been taken captive, what would you do? Would you shrug your shoulders and say, well, there's nothing I can do. I mean, these are four kings. They've come all the way from Mesopotamia. They've destroyed six cities. They defeated five kings. Who am I? I'm just a nobody. You might have said something like that. You might have said something like, well, I mean, Lot's just kind of getting what was coming to him. I gave him the choice of all of the land. He chose Sodom. He chose to live in a city that was filled with wickedness. This is really just a natural consequence of, of, of Lot's bad choices. And so I, I can't just go in and, and rescue him from the consequences of the bad choices that he's Made, Lot's just going to have to, Lot made the bed, he's going to have to lie in it. Abram could have said, look, I, I got a lot going on here. I, I don't want to get involved in international politics. I, I, I don't want to get involved in warfare. I, I, I just need to look after my own, my own herds, my own family. I'm too busy. Or maybe you would have thought, well, I really want to help Lot, But there's no way for me to help Lot without also helping the people of Sodom who are wicked people and the king of Sodom who's a wicked king. And so if I I associate with Lot, I'm concerned that I'll also be associated with everything that Sodom stands for. And if other people see me going to rescue and fight to save the people of Sodom, then what are people going to think about me? Because I want to stand for the truth and for righteousness and following God. The people of Sodom don't do that. And so I, I don't know if I can help Lot because I'm not sure what it will do to my reputation. It's complicated, isn't it? And when things are complicated, it requires courage. C.S. Lewis describes courage like this. Courage is a virtue. You know, you have virtues like love and loyalty and humility and honesty. He says courage is really just all of the other virtues at their breaking point. Abram loved Lot for all of his failings. Abram knew Lot was his family. Abram loved Lot, but now love is being pushed to the max. It's at the breaking point. How much do I love Lot? Do I love him a lot? Do I love him a lot? He's Lot. Do I love him enough to be able to risk everything, to risk my life to try to save him? It comes to the breaking point. We all know, we know honesty is a virtue. There are times where we speak the truth and it turns out really good for us. That good things happen to us when we speak the truth. There are other times where everyone wants us to speak lies and we know we need to speak the truth. And that's where we need courage. Truth is a virtue. Truth speaking, honesty is a virtue. But it needs courage to get you over the hump when you feel like you've hit the ceiling and you're maxed out on speaking the truth. And you don't know if you can anymore because it's going to cost you. Courage comes in when there's a cost. Abram loved his nephew, and he was going to need courage. So what's he got? Abram heard this. It says that he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them. Again, we're getting a picture 
of how wealthy Abram was. He, he, he doesn't just have like a small, you know, herd of a few cattle. He's got a large staff, a big team, 318, not just 318 people, 318 men who were, you know, children of older men and who had uh, wives and children. He had all kinds of people living with him, working for him. So he got them together. They were trained. They were trained on how to defend, right? The wealthier you become, the more astute you have to be at sort of protecting what you have, especially in those days. So these, these men were trained on defense, but now he's going to send them on offense. That's all he's got. Four kings with four armies, and he's got 318 men. And then it says that he, he went in pursuit as far as Dan. So let, let's, let's plot this on the, the map here. So the Valley of Sidim is there. Mamre is where Abram was living, 200 kilometers to the north. He chased them down in Dan. Now, Dan would have been added under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit after Moses wrote this. Someone would have written in the margin just to try to explain because Dan didn't exist as a place back then. And that they ended up going as far as Damascus. So Abram marched with these 318 men for 200 kilometers. Like imagine, just get some of your friends together. Let's walk to Barry together, shall we? He chased them for 200 kilometers. Took a lot of courage. Took a lot of sacrifice. Took a lot of time. Took a lot of planning as well. Some people think that if you were to live by faith or to be courageous or to take risks, that means that you just have no plan. Abram didn't just show up with his 300 soldiers and be like, okay, we're here. No, you, you, can, you can have faith and you can trust the Lord and you can still have a plan. So it, it says here that he divided his forces, verse 15, against them by night. He's only got 318. I love the precise number that's given here. He doesn't like round down or round up. Like he was down to the last soldier. How many do we got? Okay, we got 300. I thought we had 319. No, sorry, Josiah sprained his ankle. So he can't, he, oh shoot. Okay, so we only have 318. Then he divides them into two groups. And he says, okay, we, we definitely got to attack at night. Because if we attack at day, then they're going to know how little soldiers we have. So he's just using what he has. Courage and faith is just taking what you have and trusting God with the difference. So he chases them as far as, uh, as, far as Damascus. Verse 15, so he divided them by night. He and his servants, I'm in verse 15, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah north of Damascus. He essentially kicks them out of the promised land. Damascus was the northern border of the promised land. Now, what would this have meant for the original audience? There definitely would have been a warning for the people of Israel not to be like Lot. Don't get too close to sin. Don't get too close to the world. Don't, that's why you have all of these warnings about, about the other nations. You know, with, when, you, when you get close to sin, it's kind of like my kids near a creek. 
You know, as soon as my kids uh, are, are anywhere, anywhere within shot of a creek, I'm like, I might as well go home and get a towel and a change of clothes. Because it's just, you can be on the edge of the creek and you're throwing rocks in the creek or you're sending boats down the creek. And then what happens? You're in the creek, right? It's just, it's just bound to happen. And we think that we can somehow stay near to sin or stay close to the world or sort of have one foot in and one foot out. And before we know it, we're just completely in. So there would have been a warning for people not to be like Lot, but there also would have been an encouragement for people to be like Abram. Because a lot of these places that are described here are places where the people of Israel were going to have their own battles. Where they were going to have to go up feeling outnumbered by the enemies that they were fighting in this very Land, And if God was able to bring victory for Abram with 318 men, then God will be able to give victory to you because the God of promise is a God of victory. And so the, the people of Israel would have Abram in mind when they, when they uh, came across uh, a teaching like this from Moses in, in the book of Deuteronomy. Where Moses says, when you go out to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army larger than your own, you shall not be afraid of them for the Lord your God is with you. God was with Abram and he was going to be with Israel. And then throughout the history of the people of God, again, God works in these patterns, these types, where you see this small army who should do nothing but lose. They end up winning. We, we, we see it with Abram. We see it with the people of Israel when they go into the promised land. We see it with Gideon, almost the same size army, and he attacks by night as well. It's almost like he took a, there's got to be some sort of biblical precedent for what I'm doing here. It's almost like Gideon went to Genesis 14 for the war plan, for the battle plan. David at Ziklag had very few men, but, but won a great victory and rescued those who were captured. We see this theme time and time again. And there's another story in the Bible that's strangely similar, where a relative makes some stupid, sinful choices. And, and, and rather than choosing to be in the house of God, chooses to live in a heap of ruins and gets trapped there and can't get out. And, and there's nothing but slavery and death for them until one of their relatives against all odds and showing nothing but weakness wins an incredible victory. Do you know that story? You're the stupid relative. You're Lot. And rather than choosing to follow God, all of us chose the filth and wickedness of Sodom. And we got caught in it and became slave to sin and death. And Jesus on the cross at the ultimate expression of weakness won a victory for us. So loved ones, this is the, this is the battle. This is the courage. This is the example. Abram sets the tone of a theme that was going to be woven all throughout the rest of the Bible that culminates in the cross of Jesus Christ and the victory that he has won for us. So we have the background. 
And we have the battle and the courage that Abram showed. And then lastly, we have the blessing. And if you're taking notes today, just under the heading of blessing, just write this down, that compromise must be resisted. Compromise must be resisted. It's oftentimes at the moment of greatest personal victory where we simultaneously face the moment of deepest and darkest temptation. And that's what happens here. That as Abram is enjoying and he's feasting and he's experiencing the blessing of God with Melchizedek, the king of Sodom is right there too, making an offer. And compromise must be resisted. Verse 17, after his return from the defeat of Kedolaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva. So the king of Sodom's done hiding now. Is it, safe, is it safe for me to come out now? Hiding in the bitumen pits. Maybe he was one of the ones who even fell in. So they're meeting in the king's valley. But before we get to the king of Sodom, look at this character. The king of Melchizedek. Or sorry, the king Melchizedek. Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Um, Melchi means king. Zedek means righteous. So his name means king of righteousness. His position is that he's the king of Salem. Salem means peace. Uh, later on, Salem would be called Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which is the city of peace. So here's the king of righteousness, who's the king of peace, and he's reigning in Jerusalem. And look what he brings with him. He brings bread and wine. That's interesting. Here's the king of righteousness, the king of peace, reigning in Jerusalem, bringing bread and wine. If this sounds like anyone, you're on the right track. He's not just a, a king, though. He's also a priest. He was a priest of God Most High. So Abram was not the only one who was walking with the Lord at the time. That the, the traditions about Adam and Eve and, and, and uh, the, the Noah and the faithfulness of God had not just been passed down to Abram and his family, but Melchizedek, although we don't know his family, was a priest of the Most High God. This is the, in Genesis 14, we have the first mention of warfare, and this is the first time the word priest is used. When we're introduced to Melchizedek. Here's what Melchizedek says, verse 19. Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. Melchizedek wasn't a polytheist like everyone else around Abram. He didn't believe in multiple gods, that there was a war god and a water god and a sun god and a moon god. No, there's one god who's the possessor of heaven and earth. He owns it all. So he says, blessed be Abram. Then he says, and blessed be this God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. I don't know if this came by divine revelation or just common sense, but Melchizedek took one look at Abram and like the 318 guys that were with him. And he's like, okay, this must've been an act of God. There's no humanly, there's no human explanation for what has just taken place. This had defeat written all over it. And yet somehow you've been victorious. So blessed be God because he has the one who gave you this victory. And then Abram's response is a tithe. Abram gave him a tenth of everything 
in verse 20. Tithe and tenth, it's the same word. A tithe just means 10% or one-tenth. This is how Abram practically lived out the theology that Melchizedek described in verse 19. Melchizedek said in verse 19 that God is the possessor of heaven and earth. He was the possessor on everything on the planet. He was the possessor of everything that he took back that was in the possession of the the four kings of Mesopotamia and that had previously been in the possession of all of the kings of Canaan and was now in the possession of Abram. Abram knew that all of this wealth is actually the possession of God. And the way that he practically lived out that theology was by giving a tithe. That's, that's, That's why we give at church. That, that, that's, that's why that the principle of tithing is still practiced among Christians today. Not to be legalistic about it, but as an expression of worship to say that as I am giving, whether it's online or through an envelope or some other means, I am giving this amount, this tenth, I'm giving this as a symbol. It doesn't have to be a tenth. It could be more than a tenth. But I'm giving this as a symbol to show that God owns everything else. And the original audience would have totally understood that. Here's a priest, and Abram is tithing to the priest. In the book of Leviticus, the people are told to to give their tithes to the priest. God says, every tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the trees, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. Every tithe of herds and flocks, every tenth animal of all that pass under the herdsman's staff shall be holy to the Lord. So Abram, who has just gained more wealth, chooses to worship with his wealth rather than to worship his wealth. You will either use your money to worship God or you will end up serving money as your God. Verse 21 The king of Sodom speaks up and he says, give me the persons. I mean, how out of place is this? Here's Melchizedek. He's giving bread and wine. He's giving a blessing. Abram is giving a tithe. And Sodom's like, well, well, you're sort of in this giving zone. How about you give me? (laughs) He doesn't give anything but a command. (laughs) There's no thank you. There's no blessing. This is the coward that went running for the hills. He has no leverage in this negotiation. He has nothing to bring to the table. Abram has every, he has all the cards. And he has the audacity to say, this is just a picture of how wicked the city of Sodom was. How selfish the people were. For the king to say, oh yeah, hey, let's cut a deal. We don't need to cut a deal. You have nothing here. But if you live by the ways of Sodom, Sodom's always taking. Give me this, give me more. And it's never enough. But he does make a pretty good offer here. What Abram ends up doing is quite remarkable. Abram could have kept everything. Abram could have gone with what the king of Sodom was was recommending. You know, give me the the persons and, and you can keep all the goods to yourself in verse 21. But look at how Abram responds. He says, I've lifted my hand to the Lord, the God most high, verse 21, possessor of heaven and earth. He says, God possesses everything. And I've lifted my hand to him. I've made an oath to him. 
He's my true king. And I don't have to listen to you, King of Sodom. And he says, listen. Verse 23, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say that I have made Abram rich. The complicated question at the beginning, well, what if, what if, what if he goes to help Lot? Doesn't, wouldn't that actually show to everyone else that he somehow supported what Sodom was all about? No. Abram was able to be pro-Lot without being pro-Sodom. And God gave him the opportunity to do that. Right here. And Abram's saying, listen, we're, we're not together. You can't say that, that somehow we have some sort of alliance or the reason why I'm rich is because you have given to me. Abram's drawing a very clear line. Abram was vulnerable after this victory. But I believe God sent Melchizedek to him to get his eyes right on the Lord. That God is the possessor of heaven and earth. And Abram was already able to take some of his wealth and worship with it. So that when he was given the opportunity to have even more wealth. Abram had the spiritual strength and discernment to say no. If it means going along with the wickedness of this world. I would rather go without. That requires courage. To leave an offer or an opportunity on the table because of your Christian convictions requires courage. Because the king of Sodom is always ready to make a deal. But Abram wouldn't go for it. And God sent this Melchizedek to him. To bless him, to bring him bread and wine, and to receive a tithe. And the king of Sodom, his name was Bera. We, you know, we don't hear about him uh, again, but we hear about Melchizedek again. He shows up several times in God's word. He, he shows up in Psalm 110 and in Hebrews chapter uh, 7. So he shows up in Genesis 14 when Abram wins the battle and then Melchizedek is the one who brings the blessing. And then in Psalm 110, this is a psalm that's written by David. And David brings up this name Melchizedek. David says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This is one of the most commonly quoted psalms in the New Testament. Jesus loved this psalm. He was always asking people about this psalm. Remember when he arrives at Jerusalem and they start peppering him with all these questions about marriage and, and about uh, paying taxes to Caesar. And then Jesus says, hey, I got a question for you guys. What does Psalm 110 mean? Who's David talking to? When he says, the Lord says to my Lord, David's future offspring is going to somehow be his Lord? How is that possible? Psalm 110 was sort of an interpretive her hermeneutical challenge for the people of Israel. Who could be greater than David? What king could ever be greater than David? Because the, the king has to be a descendant of David. And then Psalm 10 goes on to say that the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest. How could a priest come from the line of David? 
The Fogarty family have a, a son named after the tribe of Judah. That's where the kings come from. And the tribe of Levi. That's where the priests come from. You can't have a descendant of David be a priest because he can't be a descendant of Levi. But David says, oh, my, my, my descendant is going to be a priest. A priest like Melchizedek. So Psalm 110 says that there's going to be a descendant of David who's going to bring sort of Abraham, the one who wins the battle, and Melchizedek, the one who brings the blessing. That's going to become one and the same person. And then in the book of Hebrews, Jesus becomes that descendant of David. He's the one who wins the battle and he's the one who brings the blessing. Now, the author of Hebrews is trying to convince Jewish Christians not to compromise not to go back to following the Jewish dietary laws or worship at the temple or sacrifices. He's trying to keep them on the track of just trusting in Jesus once for all sacrifice. And in order to do that, he argues that Jesus is greater than Moses and that Jesus is greater than Joshua who won the great victory. And then in Hebrews chapter six and seven, he talks about how Jesus is greater than the priests, the descendants of Levi. He says, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, the curtain of the temple, into the Holy of Holies, into the presence of God. It says that Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now the one priest once a year would go in beyond the curtain. As a, as a representative of all the other people. The other people didn't get to go in. Just one priest went as a representative. But look at how Jesus is described. He goes in behind the curtain, not as a representative, but as a what? As a forerunner. What does a forerunner do? The forerunner runs where everyone else is going to run. That Jesus has opened up the curtain into God's presence and not like the priest who closed the curtain behind them, and then opens it up and closes the curtain. No, Jesus went as the forerunner. He opened up the curtain and keeps it open and says, because of my sacrifice for sin, you can enter into the presence of God. But Jesus was a descendant of Judah, not a descendant of Levi. And so he has to be of a priesthood of a different sort, the priesthood of Melchizedek. Now, to keep this sermon from going on for another two hours... This chart, you can take a picture of it if you like. This chart outlines the flow of Hebrews chapter 7. Jesus is comparing the priests of the Old Testament to Melchizedek and to Jesus. First about tithing. The sons of Levi collected tithes. That's in the book of Leviticus. Tithes from their fellow brothers, the other sons of Abraham. But Melchizedek didn't collect tithes from the brothers, the sons of Abraham. He collected tithes from Abraham himself. And he talks about the qualifications. The reason why the high priest gets to be a high priest is because he's a descendant of Levi. Jesus is a high priest, but he has no beginning or end. Melchizedek just seems to show up out of nowhere. Everyone else in the book of Genesis has a genealogy. We all know where they came from. But Melchizedek, we don't know where he came from. Just like Jesus, in the beginning was the word. He was just always there. And he was always there and he always will be. So the priests would serve for a short term. They would serve temporarily, but Jesus served permanently. And the priests would take the Jewish people and bring them near to the curtain. 
But Jesus brought the uttermost people in past the curtain. And the priests sacrificed many animals daily where Jesus offered himself once and for all. So that is just a quick overview of Hebrews chapter 7. Let me just highlight a couple of important verses about Melchizedek and Jesus. It says, another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, that's Jesus, who became a priest, not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent. It wasn't about genealogy, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witness of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Quoting Psalm 10, which is talking about Genesis 14. And then one more uh, passage here. He holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. There was no record of Melchizedek's death. And there was, a, there was a record of Jesus' death, but then he resurrected. And he continues as a priest permanently. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Here's what Jewish priests were able to do. Jewish priests who were reading the story of Genesis chapter 14, they were able to take the Jewish people and bring them near to the inner place, but they couldn't go past the curtain. They could bring them near. The Jewish people could come near. That's great. That's amazing. That's great for the Jewish people. It's a really important role that the priest played. But Jesus is not a priest of the Levites. Jesus is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. He didn't just come for the Jewish people. He came for the uttermost people. And not offering animal sacrifices, but offered himself as a sacrifice. Not just to bring us near to the inner place, but to bring us right in to the inner place. And if you want to know where courage comes from, it comes from the presence of God. Abram knew. Abram knew that if he, listen, he had more than 318 men with him because he had God with him. If you have God on your side, if you have been brought into the presence of God, and if the presence of God by the power of the Holy Spirit goes with you into every situation and circumstance, that if you have the presence of God, you are never outnumbered. And you can always be courageous. And we are living in a world that is getting more and more ruthless, more and more hostile towards the truth, more and more comfortable with living with lies. And we will not live that way. And we will not speak that way. And we must speak the truth and we must stand for what is right. And sometimes it's complicated and difficult, but God will make it clear and will give us opportunities when we know to draw the line and when not to draw the line. But it requires courage. And that courage will only come if we know that wherever we go, that God's presence is with us because of what Jesus has accomplished for us on the cross. Let's bow our heads and pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus, the greatest victor, the one who ran after us, 
Abram traveled 200 kilometers from his home to, uh, to the region around Dan to rescue his relative. Lord Jesus, you came from heaven to earth to rescue us. And you rescued us by laying down your life for us on the cross. Jesus, you are the ultimate example of courageous love. You are the ultimate example of rescuing power. And God, I pray that that we would be people who are filled with courage, knowing that God is with us. Therefore, who can be against us? Lord, I pray that you would fill us with courage, even right now, Lord. Some of us who are walking very difficult journeys right now, very challenging decisions that are in front of them. Lord, I pray that you would give them courage without compromise. Lord, we love you and thank you. Help us now as we respond in song. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.